All right, tough to follow that. Uh, hey, everybody, welcome to Eaglebrook Church. Really good to have you with us today. If you're at one of our campuses or watching online, I want to wish you a happy new year. Hey, I've got some good news for you. The days are getting longer. Isn't that good news? They're getting a little warmer, but they're also getting longer, so there's some hope on the horizon for you. Uh, say, before I dive in, wanted to give you an update on this past Christmas because it really was amazing to see what God did. We had uh, six campuses, of course. We had, I think, 56 services across those six campuses this year for Christmas. And wanted to let you know that we had 54,134 people attend an Eagle Brook campus on Christmas Eve. Just to give you, yeah, go ahead. Just to give you a little perspective on this, that's up 16% on last year, and that's the highest attendance we've ever had in the history of our church. And so I just want to thank those of you who love this place, because there are many of you who you are a walking advertisement for Eagle Brook. You are, in a lot of ways, even more importantly, are a walking advertisement for Jesus Christ. And you pray for people, and you invite people, and you are excited about it. And really and truly, that's how we're able to reach so many people uh, for Christ. Even more exciting than the number of people who attended, though, for us was the fact that 724 people made a first-time decision to put their faith in Jesus Christ. We got to clap for that, because that's what our church is all about. Those are 724 people who now have a hope and a future. They have the forgiveness of sins. They have a promise of eternal life. They have a relationship with Jesus Christ that will never leave them, no matter what they're going through. That is the most important thing and the most important decision anyone could ever make. Hey, if you're one of the people who prayed that prayer with Bob at the end of the service, but maybe you just didn't let us know about it, would you stop off at the Next Steps area at your campus? Or you can text the word BELIEVE to 555-888. We just have some free resources we want to give to you. We want you to start this relationship out with God in the right way. So if you hadn't get a chance to do that, if you're heading to like Christmas dinner or something, go ahead and do that after today's service. Well, as you saw, we are beginning a brand new series today. It's called My Flippin' Family. And I love that title. We, we giggle every time it comes up in a creative meeting. This is kind of like pastors being a little rebellious. You know, we're like, we said flipping. You know, we just kind of, <laughs> we just get a little excited about that. That's about as far as we'll ever go. But we just get a kind of a kick out of that. And really, what's so funny about it, though, is it's so true. I mean, you think about it. Every single family has issues. I'm the kind of person who, I'm a planner. I like to know, know what my schedule is going to be like a month in advance. My wife's family, on the other hand, is much more spontaneous. So they'll call us at like noon and they'll go, hey, you want to celebrate Christmas at one o'clock? I'm like, that flipping family. Like I just, and I'm exaggerating, of course, but every single family has issues. Your family has issues. My family has issues. There's structural issues. There's cracks in the foundation. There's crazy cousin Eddie who wants to park his RV in your front yard. I mean, every family has issues. And oftentimes, it's those issues that make us want to flip our family, like some people flip houses. But here's what God wants to do. God wants to build your family. He wants to restore your family. He wants to take what's broken and falling apart, and he wants to bring it back together again, and God can do that in your family. We're praying that for you over the next five weeks. Today's message is titled Curb Appeal, 
And as you can tell, there's an HDTV themed to this series, okay? HDTV themed to this series. And the show Curb Appeal has been running since 2002. The premise of the show is they'll take the outside of a house, they'll redo it to give it more curb appeal and resale value. Here's a definition of curb appeal for you. It's the attractiveness of a property for sale and its surroundings when viewed from the street. Now, of course, that's talking about houses, but it very easily could be talking about dating relationships as well. See, I think a lot of modern dating today is a view from the street. Well, she's so cute, and he's so good-looking, and she's such a good kisser, and he's got a six-pack and a tight tushy. Oh, yeah, baby. I mean, these are the kinds of things that you hear people say. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with some of those, but they're a view from the street. They're a view from the street based on curb appeal. Let me tell you something. When your teenage son is having some issues in his life that need to be addressed, you are not going to care how tight your husband's tushy is. You are going to be looking for a man of character, principle, and morality. You're going to be looking for someone who can sit down with your son and lead him in the right direction towards God. Curb appeal only lasts for so long. At some point, you actually have to walk into the house. And if the foundation is falling apart, that cute little swing on the front porch isn't going to do you a whole lot of good. Many researchers today believe that the concept of dating is beginning to change. And that shouldn't surprise us because the world that we live in is continuing to go through change. For example, when I asked my wife Sarah out on our first date, I called her on a Motorola flip phone. Thing weighed like 10 pounds. And I told her that I was just driving by her house and happened to think about her and wanted to call her, which was a total lie. I had planned this thing out probably like a month in advance. And so I called her up on the phone and... Here's how I envisioned it playing out in my mind. In my mind, she was going to pick up the phone. Hello, this is Sarah. And I was going to go, sup, girl? Is your last name Campbell's? Because you're looking mm-mm good. That's how I imagined it happening. Now, by the way, if you're single, I just gave you gold, Okay. You ought to have written that down. Do not come back to me and go, I didn't like the message. I didn't get much out of it. It wasn't deep enough. I just gave you gold, okay? If you can't get a date with that pickup line, I can't help you, all right? You're, that's the best I can do for you. But that, that's what I kind of thought the conversation was going to go like. Here's what more what it sounded like. Hello, this is Sarah. Uh, yeah, this is Jason. Strand. We talked in the hallway one time. No, not, not that guy. Uh, I'm the one who wears FUBU and tries to talk like a gangster. Yeah, I know, I'm from Izetta. You know, it's just, that was probably kind of how the conversation went. Now, I don't remember the details, but I do remember there was a Motorola flip phone involved, so it can tell you that the world we live in is changing, and dating is changing along with it. For example, last year, over 100 million people used dating apps like OkCupid and Tinder. 50 million people alone used Tinder. 
Now, if you're not familiar with what Tinder is, the way it works is you scroll through a list of prospective mates, and if you're not interested, you swipe to the left, and if you are interested, you swipe to the right. And if both of you swipe right on one another, well, then you have a match. It's kind of like buying something on Amazon Prime. You know, it's just real simple, except you just bought a person. That's <laughs> kind of how I would describe what Tinder is like. In 2015, Vanity Fair ran an article titled Tinder and the Dawn of the Dating Apocalypse. It's a very subtle title, right? Tinder and the Dawn of the Dating Apocalypse. And the premise of the article was that with dating apps like Tinder, the concept of modern dating was beginning to change. That we were moving into an era of casual sex, random hookups, and less commitment in relationships. Now, the reaction to this article was mixed, with many people pointing out that millennials actually have fewer sexual partners than previous generations, but everybody agreed that the concept of dating is going through some changes. For example, the emails that I get from young people these days will ask me questions like this. Where do you find a good guy or a good girl? And they'll almost talk about it like it's some rare species that's going extinct. I'm looking for the elusive good guy or the elusive good girl. And they just, they just don't know where to find that person anymore. Or they'll ask me questions like this. How do I know if the person I'm dating is the one? I had one girl email me last year and she said, you know, when older adults talk about young people breaking up, they talk about it like it's so trivial. And she said, you know, sometimes it is, but let me tell you, sometimes it's devastating to lose your best friend and the sadness and even depression that can come along with that. She added, I don't think I've ever been taught how to break up from a Christian perspective. And it's not just young people who are feeling this way. Recent statistics tell us that about 40% of American adults are single. It's because of the increasing divorce rate and other factors. But maybe you're here today and you find yourself in a situation you never thought you would be in. That you're widowed. And that person you used to spend all that time with, they're, they're not there now but everything reminds you of them. Or you're divorced, and the pain and the scars that that left are still with you today, and so now you're going, well, what should I do? Do I date? Is God okay with me dating? Do I even remember how to date? What should I do? If you are a parent or a grandparent, then this message is for you, because your kids, your grandkids, they need your advice in all areas of life, but particularly around this issue of dating. And if your son or daughter or grandson or granddaughter comes to you one day and goes, well, how do I know if this person's the one? And your answer to them is, well, you know, you'll, you'll just know. Well, then you have failed to equip them to date and to choose well. And that's part of the problem that many people are facing. Many young people today have never seen a healthy dating relationship. Their older siblings or their older friends, they dated, they broke up, they got back together, they broke up again. There was cheating, there was lying, there was manipulative behavior, there was anger, there was blaming, there was divorce. They've never seen what a healthy dating relationship 
can look like. You see, here's the truth. Anyone can fall in love. Anyone can fall in love. What's more difficult is staying committed to love. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it's written directly to singles. And so if you're a person who's single or you're you know, a parent who's working with a, a child who's single, you got to read this chapter because it's going to speak directly to the circumstances and the questions that you have. But Paul begins this way. He says, if you do get married, it's not a sin, which that's good news for all of us who are married, right? You're like, well, you know, it's not going great, but at least it wasn't a sin. <laughs> he says, however, I am trying to spare you the extra problems that come with marriage. Now, if you're sitting next to your spouse right now, don't get too excited when I say this, but do you know what your spouse is? They're a problem. They really can be a problem, aren't they? And when I tell young people this, they look like a dog that just heard a whistle. They're like, really? I thought he was going to complete me. No, that was a movie. <laughs> he is going to completely forget his Chinese food in the refrigerator and stink the whole place up for a couple weeks. He will completely do that. But he is going to be a problem, which is why Paul goes on to say this. He says, an unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him, how to please God. But a married man can't do that so well. He has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. And let me tell you, that's a full-time job, right? <laughs> Some of you know, this is kind of a full-time job. Now, here's why I wanted to read those verses to you. Because I wanted you to see how different the Bible speaks of singleness than many people in our culture do today. You see, we live in a world that when people talk about being single, sometimes they talk about it like it's this death sentence. I mean, you'll hear people like, oh, I'm just trying to find love. I just can't find anybody. I just want to find love, and I don't want to be lonely anymore. It's how our culture speaks about being single. The Bible speaks of it differently as a gift as a time to give God your undivided attention. If you're single, can we just take a deep breath for a moment and remind ourselves that there's nothing wrong with being single and there's not necessarily anything wrong with you because you're single? Jesus was single. Paul was single. There are many benefits to being single, which is why Paul says in the next verse, he says, the person who marries does well, and the person who doesn't marry does even better. <laughs> I mean, you can tell he's not married, right? He's like, let me show you. But his point is this. Singleness is not a time to despise. It is a time to embrace. And so here's what I want to try to do today. I want to try to give you three declarations that you need to make before you date. Okay, I'm not saying you need to date. I'm not saying you should date. I'm saying if you do decide to date, you need to make these three declarations before you do. If you are single, if you are the parent of a child who's single, if you're the friend of someone who's single, you may want to jot these down. Because a lot of modern dating today is curb appeal. It's a view from the street. And people enter into a lifelong committed relationship based on window dressings and outward appearances. And then they actually get into the marriage. They get into the house. And the storms hit. 
And let me tell you, storms will hit. And all of a sudden they realize, wait a minute, the foundation isn't secure. The foundation is beginning to crack. Don't do that. Make these three declarations before you date. Here's the first one. Don't date when you're hungry. <laughs> Don't date when you're hungry. A few weeks ago, I was speaking here at church, and my two oldest sons had a basketball tournament down in Rosemont. And so right after I got done speaking, I drove down to their two games. And as we were driving home, I was starving. We stopped at a gas station, and my son goes, hey, can we just go inside and get a snack? And I usually never get food at a gas station. But for some reason, I found myself going, yes. And when we got in there, I got two Italian sandwiches on white bread. I got a Lunchables for my son. I got Pringles cheese and potato chips, a whole canister. And I got a pint of Twix ice cream. <laughs> my son walked up and he's like, are we getting all of this? I was like, yeah, yeah, we, we actually really are. And he was in total shock. My digestive system was in shock later on that evening. But here's my point. Here's my point. People do dumb things when they're hungry. People do really dumb things when they are hungry for love. In his love letter in the Bible, King Solomon, who is considered to be one of the wisest men who's ever lived, he wrote these words. He said, promise me, O women of Jerusalem, not to awaken love until the time is right. Here's one of the wisest men who's ever lived, and he's growing to this group of women, and he's going, promise me this. And he could have said anything. I mean, he could have demanded or asked them to consider anything. But what he says is, promise me this. Promise me you won't rush. Promise me you won't just jump into any relationship at any time. Promise me that you will not awaken love until the time is right. One of the biggest mistakes that people make in dating relationships is they just go too fast. So they break up with someone, a serious relationship, and two months later, they're back in another serious relationship. Someone goes through a devastating divorce. Six months later, they're already seeing someone again. Slow down. Even when you get into that relationship, slow down. Now, I've heard the stories about people who dated for three weeks, and now they've been married for 30 years, and, and that's fantastic. But those are the exception to the rule. You need to see this person through a whole season. How do they handle stress? How do they handle adversity in life? What do they do when they lose their temper? How do they handle their anger? If you cannot answer those questions, then you are not ready for marriage. Solomon says, do not awaken love until the time is right. What's the right time? Well, there's not a perfect answer for that, but let me just give you two quick suggestions. The first one is, the time is right when you're at a point of maturity in your life. I will talk to 12-year-olds sometimes. And they'll tell me, you know, I got, I got a girlfriend, I got a boyfriend. You know, we've been going out for three months or something. And, and, and I get it. Like, if you're 12, 13, 14, 15, I, I get it. But sometimes I can't help myself. I just like to poke a little bit. And I'll say, oh, you, you've been going out for three months, huh? Where, where did you go? Did you go to a movie? Did you take her to dinner? Like, where, oh, you don't have a license. You didn't, you didn't go anywhere, did you? And this, they're like, you're mean, right? You're, you're a mean pastor to treat a 12-year-old that way. But... I just get a kick out of it for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, 
Now, now, if you're in that age group, again, I get it. it. It can be kind of harmless. But here's my real concern. When a preteen or a teenager is finding their sense of worth and identity in life because they have a boyfriend or girlfriend, you are skating on dangerous ice. When a preteen or a teenager feels less than or inferior because they don't have a boyfriend or girlfriend, you are skating on really thin ice. Parents, you need to talk to your kids about this because attention can become an addiction. Attention can become an addiction. We all know people who grew up and they didn't get the attention they wanted from their parents, and so they spent their whole life looking for it in all the wrong places. And I'll tell you, I talk to 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds, and after we dig beneath the surface a little bit, sometimes what they discover is this. They'll have this light bulb moment and they'll go, wait a minute, I'm not dating because I'm pursuing marriage. I'm dating because I'm pursuing attention, affection. I'm pursuing significance that I don't otherwise have apart from this dating relationship. I'm actually pursuing self-esteem. They are hungry and they end up buying a pint of Twix ice cream which is why my second suggestion is don't date until you've discovered what real love is. What's real love? Well, the Bible defines it in 1 John 4.10. He says this, this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. That's real love. That God loved every one of you so much and wanted a relationship with you so desperately that he was willing to sacrifice his one and only son to make sure that that could happen. That's the kind of love that preteens and teenagers need to discover in their life. That if they know that they are loved by God, and they know that no matter what's happening in their life, that they have God's affection, and they have significance and identity as a son or a daughter of God. And that love begins to fill them up. Not just, yeah, I go to church and I've you know, heard the story of Noah's Ark, but there, his love begins to fill them up in a very real way. Then you might be ready to date. But don't date when you're hungry because people do really dumb stuff when they're hungry. Here's the second declaration you need to make before you date, and it's this. Don't marry a fixer-upper. My wife and I bought a house about seven or eight years ago, and it was kind of a fixer-upper. It had been a foreclosure the year before, and the guy we bought it from, he was one of these guys that buys foreclosures, he remodels the house, and then he tries to flip them for a profit. And he was from the Ukraine, and he loved saunas. He had grown up with a sauna in the Ukraine, he just loved them. So he put a sauna in the basement when he was remodeling it. Well, at the closing, he kind of leans into me with a twinkle in his eye, and he goes, did you see that sauna? And I was like, yeah, that's cool, I'm, I'm excited to try that out. He goes... It works, too. <laughs> and I was like, well, sure. I, I would expect most things in the house to work. Well, the next week, I moved into the house. I finally understood. Nothing worked. The doorbell didn't work. The water softener didn't work. The electrical wiring downstairs, he had jimmy-rigged the whole thing, and so there was electricity flowing through the water, and I got electrocuted in the shower. Nothing in the house worked except the sauna. <laughs> sauna worked like a charm. We've had it for seven or eight years, never had a problem with that. Now, here's my point. Buying a fixer-upper is risky. Dating or marrying a fixer-upper is foolish. 
People do it all the time. They'll say, you know what? He said he'd come to church with me. Or, you know, she said she would be, you know, be, be as a Christian. Here's the analogy that I always give to young people. I'll say, imagine you're running a race. And that finish line is Jesus Christ. You're seeking him. You're pursuing him. You want to get to know him more. And so that's the direction that you're running. If, as you're running that race, you look to your left or you look to your right and you see someone running right alongside you in the same direction, ask them out. I mean, that's the person you want to date. But if you hear someone 100 yards behind you and they're like, hey, nope, you keep running straight for that finish line. You are not going to be pulled back by someone. You're not going to be dragged away from your relationship with God by another person. You are going to date someone who's running right alongside you. Someone who you can see loves Jesus on a daily basis. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, don't team with those who are unbelievers. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, another translation says, don't be yoked together with those who are unbelievers. A yoke was, and still is, a piece of wood that is used to join two animals together for the purpose of plowing a field. So these animals come together and they're trying to grow something. They're trying to build something. They have a purpose that they're working together to accomplish. You would never put an ox yoked together with a donkey because it wouldn't work. The ox would pull one way. The donkey would start to pull another. And yet that's what oftentimes people do in dating relationships. They meet somebody and they go, oh, they're, they're so good looking. I'm really attracted to them. And, and we have a lot of things in common. I mean, we're both middle kids in our family, and we both love 80s music, and we collect old vinyl records. We love going to concerts. We love to walk our dog, and he likes to celebrate Christmas just like I do. I mean, we have so much in common. And then they get into the marriage, and they have to start building something and growing something and moving with a purpose with one another. And one of them goes, you know, I think we should be giving a percentage of what we earn to further the work of God in this world. And the other one's going, are you kidding? We can't afford that. And one of them's going, you know, I think our kids should go to student ministries on Wednesday nights. And the other one's going, well, they've got sports practice. Can't do that. And one of them says, you know, I think we should raise our kids to have Jesus Christ be the top priority in their life. And the person goes, yeah, okay, sure. But they're not really on board with that. They're pulling in two different directions. It's like you've got a GPS telling you to turn left, a GPS telling you to turn right. It just doesn't work, which is why Paul rhetorically asks this question. He says, how can light live with darkness? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And the answer is, you really can't. But here's what people do when they enter into dating relationships. Oftentimes, they put on a pair of these. And they're rose-colored glasses. And it's called infatuation. That when you're wearing these, you, you say, I'm in love. But, but really what it is, is it's called infatuation. And so when you look at your boyfriend and his work ethic, here's what you see. But here's what your family sees. Because they're not wearing the rose-colored glasses. And when you look at your girlfriend and how she deals with stress and anxiety and anger, here's what you see. But here's what your friends see. 
because they're not wearing the rose-colored glasses. Scientists have found that infatuation literally shuts down your brain. I don't know if you knew this or not, but scientifically, this is true. That when you get into a relationship with someone, you're like, I'm in love, I'm in love, I don't care who knows about it, I'm in love, and the computer just shuts down. And you just completely overload your brain. Which is why you need to sit down with a family member, a godly friend, or a counselor who knows your relationship and has the right motives, and you need to say to them, hey, would you give me some feedback on this? I'm going to trust you. I'm going to listen to you. Will you help me navigate this relationship? Because I'm just in that infatuation stage. Now, that sounds really good on paper. And most singles are like, yep, yep, I, I agree with that. But what about when you haven't dated someone for two years, three years, or five years? And all of a sudden, you get into that relationship, and you go, oh, this feels so good. And the people who are telling you, I don't know about this, you're like, you just don't want me to be happy. You just don't be happy. This is the happiest I have been in years, and it feels so good. You don't want to listen to anyone else. And when that happens, people tend to settle. But let me ask you a question. Why would you settle? If somebody offered you a flame and yawn, why would you say, you know, I'm going to have a Hormel hot dog instead? <laughs> don't marry a wiener. Okay? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Don't marry a wiener. Now, maybe a better way of saying that is this. Do you trust God that if you obey him and honor him and trust him in this area of your life, if you are willing to wait on him, do you trust that God will provide the right person for you at the right time? And this is so critical because you cannot change a human heart. Only God can change a human heart. But you'll hear people and they'll say, yeah, you know, I, I know he's addicted and he's got some anger issues and he's, he's coming off two failed marriages, but, but it's going to work for us. I mean, I'll fix this. It's, it's going to be different. No, it, it's, it's probably not. And if you're in a relationship right now where you feel like you have to stay together with this person, if you're in a dating relationship, I'm speaking about dating relationships, if you're in a dating relationship and you feel like I have to stay together with this person or else they're just going to fall apart, like they're going to go back to their addiction, they're going to stop coming to church, they're going to self-harm, so I need to be there for them, I need to be in this relationship, this is going to surprise you when I say this, you should immediately end that relationship. You are not God. And when you keep trying to play God in another person's life, he's like, but they need me. And then they, they'll just fall apart without me. You are most likely only getting in God's way. Do not date a fixer-upper. Here's the third declaration that you need to make. It's this. Become the kind of person that you want to marry. So when I was single, like many people, I remember writing a list of what I was looking for in a spouse. And I wrote down things like, they love Jesus, they're humble, they're generous, Minnesota Twins fan, likes chicken wings, you know, bonus that they can cook chicken wings. It was a really important list, <laughs> really important thing. It never once crossed my mind that instead of trying to find that person, what if I became the kind of person that that person would be attracted to? But I hear this all the time. Years ago, one of my wife's Facebook friends she went on this rant on Facebook, and she was like, oh, why are all guys so mean? I swear there's no good guys out there. I'm going to be single forever. 
Two days before that, her post on Facebook was, Wild Bills, excited to party and get my drinky drink on. Now, I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm not trying to be harsh. I just want to try to state the obvious here. You most likely are not going to find a great guy at Wild Bill's getting your drinky drink on. You might find them at church, volunteering in like student ministries or something. You might find them through a mutual friend who sets you up. You might find them online. I'm not against online dating at all. As long as it's a reputable dating site, that's a great way to meet people. There are many places that you can meet people in the world today, but most likely it's not going to be at the club or at Wild Bill's. And this goes back to my point. You have to become the right kind of person. If you want to find somebody who loves Jesus and they're humble and they're generous and they're a servant, guess what? You need to be a person who loves Jesus and is humble and generous and a servant. We spend so much time, we expend so much energy looking for the right kind of person. But what if we focused on becoming the right kind of person? My wife took our kids to Como Zoo this summer, and they were in that tropical part where the birds are kind of just floating around and flying around by themselves. And my son had a sucker, and he noticed that the birds seemed to be attracted to his sucker. And so at one point, he goes, watch this. And he was hoping that one of the birds would land on his sucker, but that didn't happen. But the birds did get really excited. They were attracted to it. So they started swirling all around him, and one of them pooped on his shoulder. And another one dumped on the other shoulder. If you're single, do you ever feel like that? You ever feel like, no, I'm just getting dumped on here. You know, I'm putting myself out there. I'm trying to attract the right person, but I just keep getting dumped on. I just keep attracting suckers. Could it be that the reason you're attracting suckers is because that's what you're using as the bait? I love what Pastor Andy Stanley says about this. He says, are you the person, the person you're looking for is looking for? That's a great statement. Are you the person that the person you're looking for is looking for? One of my former coworkers, I was talking to her several years ago, and when she was single, she went through several failed relationships with the wrong kind of guy. And one day she got so upset, she actually prayed out loud to God. She was like, why do I keep choosing the wrong person? And right after she prayed this, she had this thought in her mind, and the thought was, because you're the one doing the choosing. And after that, she said, you know what, I'm going to focus on becoming the right kind of person. And so she started volunteering at a student ministry, and of course, you've heard these kinds of stories, but met a guy when she wasn't even looking. Now they've been married for 10 years, and they have two kids. Have you ever sat down and said to God, God, what, who is it that you would want me to date? Who, who is it that, that you would want me to marry? And very openly, you came before God and just asked him for his wisdom on that. By the way, all of this applies to married couples as well. You know, if you're married, you probably have times where you think, you know what, if my spouse would change, our marriage would be better. I mean, if they just stop doing this or start doing that, we would, we would be in such a better place. Instead of focusing on what your spouse needs to change, what if this year you said, you know what, I'm going to focus on one aspect of my own character, and I am going to become the kind of person that I would want to be married to? If both of you did that this year, 
This would be the best year of marriage you've ever had. As I was preparing this message, I started to pray for the people in our church who are single. And I was thinking about those of you who are widowed. And again, how just everything is a memory. And that person you used to eat dinner with and watch TV with and go on walks with, they're not there anymore. And for those of you that are divorced and the feelings of rejection and a lowering of your self-worth and the pain that can come along with that. And I started praying for those of you who are dating somebody, but it's somebody you know you probably shouldn't be dating, but there's just a level of fear there of, you know, I just don't know if I can actually do that, if I can actually move on from that relationship that I know is not good for me. And for those of you who are teenagers and you're in your 20s and your 30s and you're going, you know what, I, I would like to meet somebody. I, I'd like to have that kind of relationship and move in that direction, but I just, just can't seem to find the right person. I want to share with you a verse from the Bible. It's a verse that sometimes gets taken out of context, but I really believe there's something for us here today. It's Jeremiah 29, 11. He says, for I know the plans I have for you. Isn't that good news to know that God has a plan for your life? That no matter what you're going through right now, that no matter what circumstance you're in, that, that God has a plan and he's never caught off guard. He's never going, well, I, I, I didn't see that coming. What do we do now? God has a plan. He says, and the plans I have for you, they are plans for good and not for disaster. Do you trust God when he says that? Well, sometimes our definition of good and God's definition of good aren't the same. But even when you're going through some things that are hard, that maybe, just maybe, God could use that for the good in your life later on down the road. He says, I have plans for you, and they're plans for good, to give you a hope and a future. And for some of you, that future is to be single, and for some of you, that future is to be married, but either way, it's a good plan. As I mentioned, have you ever come before God? And said, God, what, what do you want me to do? Before I asked my wife to marry me, I took an hour-long walk around a lake. And I tried very open-handedly just to pray and ask God, is this the right decision? And by the end of that walk, I had this sense that this was God's plan. And this was God's gift. And people will ask me, well, how did you know that? And I'll say, well, you got to go take the walk you got to come before God and ask him and talk to him, not in a way of like, God, just do what I want you to do, but God, I'm open to whatever you want in my life. You see, for two years during that time, a life verse of mine was Psalm 37, verse 4, which says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And for two years, I trusted that statement. I thought, I'm going to delight in the Lord. I'm going to get to know him. I'm going to pursue him. I'm going to seek him. I'm going to grow in my relationship with him. I'm going to delight in him. And then one day I looked around and realized that God had given me the desires of my heart. And I believe the same is true for you, that when you delight in him, that one day you will look around and you will go, oh, God had a plan. It was a plan for my good. And he gave me the desires of my heart. Let's stand together as we pray at all of our campuses.
Hey, just so you know, in the next couple weeks, we've got a message on parenting. We've got messages on marriage and divorce and relationships of all kind in your family. Really, it's going to be a series that you're not going to want to miss. You might want to invite some people uh, who those topics would speak to as well. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray for that person here who might be single and is just kind of struggling with that. Lord, I pray that you would reassure them that you are with them, you have a plan, and it's a plan for their good. God, help them become the right kind of person to focus on delighting in you, and then you will give them the desires of their heart. God, I pray for parents who have tough conversations they're trying to navigate. Maybe there's situations where someone's dating someone that we don't really want them to date. And God, I pray for your wisdom. I pray for your compassion. I pray for your guidance. And God, really for all of us here, we, we thank you for the relationships you provide for us in our life with one another and first and foremost with you, God. Thank you for sending your son because you loved us so much. God, would you fill us with that love today? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you need prayer, come on down front. Otherwise, have a great day, everybody.